application of the Bible is an art and a science. But quite a number of people I've been reading recently have complained that we Christians have left too much to art and not enough to science. We need careful, intellectually demanding, exegetical work in the text of Scripture to help refine our sense of what counts as legitimate and what counts as illegitimate Bible application. I have one of these careful scientific thinkers on the podcast today, Dr. Abraham Curavilla. I know you will enjoy, as I did, his blending of rigorous thinking with the heart of love for Christ as we all seek to be conformed to Christ's image. Welcome to the Bible Study Magazine podcast, season two, episode nine. I wanted to have someone on for this episode who would be willing and able to talk in a more technical, philosophical, academic, and yay, theological way about the relationship of original textual meaning in the Bible to current application, which is the theme of this season. And then I encountered some careful work that our guest did on application in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society back in 2018. And I also picked up his 2013 book, Privilege the Text, A Theological Hermeneutic for Preaching. It's one of the few books that I have in my personal library whose title contains an exclamation point. And Dr. Curavilla is one of the very few practicing dermatologists with PhDs in biblical studies that I can ever recall having had on the podcast. Dr. Dr. Double Dr. Abraham Curavilla, tell us how you serve the body of Christ. Uh, well, in my uh, uh, non-secular vocation of dermatology, I am a full-time faculty member at Dallas Theological Seminary where I teach preaching. And in my other life, I take care, I serve God by taking care of people's deceased skin, hair, and nails. That's the domain of a dermatologist. Right. How long have you served at Dallas Theological Seminary? This is my 13th year full-time, a few years before that part-time as well. And what classes do you generally teach there? It's all preaching. Excellent. Homiletics is the technical term, as you well know. Our listening audience probably does too. Now, in your book that I just uh, spent a lot of hours reading in the last few days, and I was highlighting and highlighting and highlighting, Privilege the Text, you used a model of interpretation that I, I have seen before, developed by E.D. Hirsch, one that I know that John Piper has also used for... Um, for that matter, in which meaning is a triad of three things, original textual sense, trans-historical intention, and exemplifications. Now, these are uh, pieces of jargon, technical terms that are just crying out to be distinguished and explained. What can you tell us about how these technical terms uh, help us to do in our Bible reading? Well, to put it simply, and I'll keep my answers short so we can perhaps deal with more questions, the text says something, and the author is doing something with what he's saying, and that doing of the author is valid across centuries, and it's valid for all time. That's why the trans-historical across time periods. And then, of course, the third thing is application. How does it specifically apply to me, Abe Kurvilla, living in the 21st century? So text, and then there's that 
intermediary element, which I call with a different name now, but it's an intermediary element that links the text and concrete application for me today. That intermediary element that you uh, have a different name for now, what, what's the new name? I call it theology, but it's a different species of theology. It's a theology of the, and here's a keyword, theology of the pericope. Pericope, yes. Yes, it's, uh, I use pericope in a very non-technical sense to demarcate a chunk of text that is used for preaching and application. I have come to find myself doing the same thing over recent years because pericope, although it comes, especially I hear it when talking about discrete sections of the gospels, individual stories and discourses from Jesus, it is just such a helpful term to use for any preachable section, which is somewhat subjective. It's not as if the text comes to us with these divisions already made, but they're there. You you can't help but see there's a transition in, in text no, from story a, to story. I, I did have a friend suggest to me that I call it chunk theology. And so it would sound a lot more better and attractive than pericopal theology, which is even hard to get out of one's mouth. That, that could be true. Well, it all depends on the audience, right? So, But you're stuck with pericopal theology now. You've used that often in your writing, as I saw recently. Now, there, there was for a the last... That, uh, if I may, just... In... Go ahead. There was a reason for that. There is biblical theology, which is which has different meanings, but essentially it demarcates the theology of a book. And there's canonical theology, which also tends to have different meanings, but essentially the theology of a canon. Well, what about a smaller quantum of theology, which is the theology of the pericope? Yes. Every one of those um, views, you know, I, I tend to liken it to the magnifying glass looking at the tree to the then the hot air balloon flying up above the forest and then the U-2 spy plane and then above that the satellite. You Every one of these views, these zooming in and zooming out is helpful and necessary for good Bible understanding. Now I wanted to ask you a question that really goes back I guess in evangelicalism a good 25 plus years I, I sort of see D.A. Carson's The Gagging of God as um, the first major book that kind of made it onto my radar that, that showed that uh, evangelicals were being concerned about what postmodernism was doing to Bible interpretation. I, I know now it goes back further in time, but that's when it got onto my radar. And evangelicals have been afraid for all that time that postmodernism would bring what's often called a reader response hermeneutic to Bible reading in which there is no textual meaning, only the multiple meanings that different people or different interpretive communities draw out of the text. And what you bring out in your book, if I may hazard this, is the, it, it seems to me, obvious truth that the biblical writers intended for their words to be used in the future. They also self-consciously at times collected previously inspired utterances like the Proverbs of Solomon collected by the men of Hezekiah or the, the Psalms of the sons of Korah. They then placed them in collections. So th that became the canon. So even their act of collecting was removing those texts from their precise original historical circumstance and therefore indicating that we can rightfully do the same thing. <clears throat> the, the very act of writing something down is an indication that you want people in the future future who are not in your precise circumstance, uh, you know, geographically, temporally distant, 
to use your thoughts, okay? What are some other passages of scripture? I just mentioned some in Proverbs and some in Psalms, which indicate that the Bible writers intended for their work to be pericable theology, to be, that show that they had trans-historical intentions. Yeah, I think the one that comes to mind is 1 Corinthians 10, 11, I think, where Paul tells the Corinthians that these things were happened as an example for us. And all throughout scripture, as you mentioned, there is a sense of uh, the text being given not just for information, but for transformation. So it is meant to be applied. It is meant to be life-changing. And the goal of God is to conform us all into the image of Christ, Romans 8, 29. And therefore, there needs to be guidance as to what Christ looks like, if I may put it that way. And so I would say that each pericope of scripture is actually giving me a facet of the image of Christ, what the perfect man, Jesus Christ, he's also perfect God, but I am called to be conformed to his perfect humanity, is like, or better still, each pericope is a pixel of the image of Christ. And so approaching it that way, we, you know, whether it's Proverbs 25, 16, that tells you when you find honey, eat only what you need, lest you overeat and vomit, uh, telling me to be moderate in my consumption is another pixel in the image of Christ. For me to be more Christ-like, I must be moderate in my consumption, and so on and so forth. So it takes 66 books to give me the full picture of Jesus Christ, the image of Jesus Christ. So I tend to label my hermeneutic is a Christ-iconic hermeneutic, going from the uh, Romans 8, 29, conform us into the image, the Greek word is icon of Christ. So Christ-iconic interpretation. Every pericope of scripture, old and new, is giving me a pixel of the image of Christ, to which God calls me to align. One of the things I found most helpful in your work, I, I don't know that you actually said this explicitly, but it, it seemed to me to be pushing back against what I would call an abuse of the redemptive historical model. Um, I grew up without the redemptive historical model. I didn't understand why the Old Testament was given to us other than the most obvious portions. I would listen to preaching and sometimes think, I really have no idea what this text is saying, but I'm pretty sure it's not what the preacher says it's saying. Redemptive historical approaches like those taught by Brian Chapel helped me a great deal to situate Old Testament stories within, you know, that U2 spy plane view or the satellite view of all of scripture. Um, but then I started to see over the years a danger there, and this is true for Bible readers, not just Bible preachers, that that big picture tends to make those pixels so small that they disappear. You just kind of smooth over, even to the point of erasing the contribution of individual, what you've called pericopes. Were you in any way self-consciously pushing back against that abuse of the redemptive historical view of Scripture? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, we have a great argument in uh, Brian Chapel and I in um, hermeneutics, homiletics and hermeneutics, four views on preaching, which I recommend to those interested, as well as my privilege, the text which you just cited, Mark. Uh, yes, I, 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 the key is not really malice or forethought on the part of redemptive historical theologians or Christocentric hermeneutics. It is that for, to the to a great extent, they have not seen the intricacies of the text 
pointing to what the author is doing. It's at the level of exegesis that many interpreters have failed. If you don't see what the author is doing in a particular text, we as children of God have the intuitive sense that this entire book needs to be connected to Jesus Christ in some way. We all agree that it's Christological. The question is, how is it Christological? Christocentric interpreters make a fairly rapid leap into the Old into the New Testament uh, without catching what the author is doing in any given pericope. And I would say, uh, against those styles of interpretation, that a Christ-iconic interpretation not only does justice to the text and what it's doing, but also makes it Christological by linking it, not with the actual presence of Christ in the text, but with an image of Christ's likeness. Have you seen uh, the Old Testament commentaries that I assume, I have to believe, were originally sermons given by Dale Ralph Davis, the, uh, I think it's the Mentor series, Focus on the Bible. I can't remember the title now. We've got them in Logos Bible software. Seems to me that he has a redemptive historical approach, but he's very attentive to those details. Yeah. I think he does uh, intuitively what I'm trying to do on a more rigorous and established basis. But again, the failure he says is at the level of exegesis. And this is where I think Bible scholars and our seminary profs over the years have failed us. And I include myself in that group as well. I think we're just mining the Bible as if it were a compendium of information to create a systematic theology grid to produce a biblical theology timeline, threads that connect everything together. Failing to understand what the text is doing. And if, you, if I may, if, uh, this is a short and easy example, and I frequently use this simply because it's short and easy to catch. In 1 Samuel 15, that's the story of Saul being ordered by God to kill all the Amalekites. The story starts with, now the word of the Lord came to Samuel the prophet to tell Saul to go kill the Amalekites. The Hebrew is actually now the voice of the word of the Lord, which has completely been neglected and left untranslated in most English translations, except, and this might interest you, Mark, except for the King James and its heirs. You, you wonder, you the voice of the word of the Lord, and I, I, you know, it's easy to see with the translators that it seems a bit redundant. Uh, why is that there? Hold that thought for a second. Saul, of course, as you know, does not obey. He does not kill all the Amalekites. He saves the king. He does not kill all the animals. He saves the best, probably as financial paybacks for his actions and the king as a trophy for him. I, I am the bane of the Amalekites. I am the Amalekite killer. Catch me if you can, you know, that kind of thing. And so he goes back to Samuel, and Samuel confronts him and says, did you do what the Lord told you to do? And Saul goes, of course. And then Samuel goes with this timeless indictment. What then is the bleating of the sheep and the lowing of the cattle that I hear? Well, for us, unfortunately for us English readers, it's not bleating and lowing in the Hebrew. And I'll give 
a couple of seconds for our listeners to guess what the word is. Ooh, ooh, it's voice. It's voice. Yes, indeed. Now, did you catch what the author is doing there? He's actually poking his index finger into my sternum, my sternum, and asking me, which voice are you listening to? This one? Or the voice of the titillations and seductions and attractions of the world? Which one will you listen to? The very fact that Bible translators have omitted voice in 15.1 and retranslated voice into bleating and lowing is ample evidence of the fact that Bible scholars and translators and the rest of us in academia have failed to understand that authors do things with what they say. And unless you catch what the author is doing with what he is saying, there cannot be valid application. It's just impossible. For instance, Mark, if we were in each other's presence face to face, uh, if Dallas and, uh, and Washington were brought close together, and I happened to be in an elevator with you, and my foot happened to be on top of yours, and you told me, Abe, your foot is on top of mine. What you said is the location of my foot on top of yours. What you are doing with your, your saying is telling me to get off. Now, unless I understand that doing with what you are saying, there can be no valid application. If I just thought you were reminding me of where my foot was for some obscure reason, I'd say, well, thank you, Mark, for telling me and do nothing about it. Until I catch the fact that you are, you're actually wanting my foot off, uh, Unless I catch the doing, there cannot be valid application. And that, I think, is the critical aspect that I'm after. Catching what the author is doing, pericope by pericope, which is why I have embarked on writing a series of commentaries on several books of the Bible going pericope by pericope, seeing what the author is doing in each of those, so that preachers, we can go forward into valid application. You gave that illustration in your book, and you had a footnote there that I don't have in my notes, so I'm going to misquote it somehow. But, um, you know, that illustration raises a very specific context. You also used another illustration where I think, oh, there's something about the door is open. And, you know, maybe if I'm a, a boss and the secretary says, hey, I've got a question for you, and I say the door is open, well, that means come on in. If it's cold outside and I'm bundled up in my easy chair and I tell one of the kids, the door is open, that means something very different. The, those circumstances use, the, those illustrations, both of them use a very brief amount of English in highly specific circumstances. But I think in a footnote, you said that scripture usually gives us far more text because, of course, we lack the very specific knowledge of the circumstances of the vast majority of the writers. And right? unlike spoken communication, we lack the winks, the expressiveness, the loudness, the softness, all of those things. And there are no italics or bold in, in Scripture. So we lose all of that. But there's enough volume in Scripture, as in the First Samuel 15 case, to give us a clear sense of what the author is doing, just that connection of the voice and the voice 
uh, and so on in almost every pericope of scripture. It's, uh, it's amazing. The text is just amazing. Sure is. You sound a lot like Ian Proven. He, I interviewed him for a documentary that I did on the King James Version, and uh, he was making. He makes very similar kinds of comments in his commentaries. Especially, he's known for working on uh, the Book of Kings, First and Second Kings. He's very attentive to these details, and he he just feels a visceral sense of uh, betrayal when Bible translators, in an effort that I think we all, in one sense, laud, you know, to make the text accessible, readable to modern audiences, when they take away the opportunity that those readers would then have to make connections like this. It upsets a careful exegete like him. I would add one more indictment to that. It's not so much to make it accessible. If they really wanted to make it accessible, they would have translated correctly. No. Let's take the example of narratives. And I've, I've mentioned this in my book. The idea that the text is nothing but a plain glass window through which I look to see what happened and then I preach what happened, is wrong. Because what happened is not inspired. It's only the Holy Spirit's inspired account that ought to be privileged and preached. So I say that it's, the text is not a plain glass window through which I look, it's a stained glass window at which I should look. Um, it, it's particularly true, especially when you look at the Gospels, for instance, where you have four different accounts of the same historical event. For instance, in Mark chapter 14, after the trial of Jesus, Mark recounts that Jesus was blindfolded and somebody slapped him and yelled, prophesy. Now, what did they ask him to prophesy? Blindfolded, hit him, prophesy. Who hit you? Now, who hit you? Now, Mark doesn't say that. Matthew does. You know what Mark does? It's very clever. He's, and I'm just going to paraphrase. He's saying, you know, folks, I know that's, that's what really happened. You know that. So, but, but follow me. This is, this, is, this is what I'm going to do. Blindfolded, hit, yell, prophesy. And Mark immediately, imagining him as the director of this movie called The Gospel of Mark, yells, cut. The scene changes. The next one is Peter denying Jesus, the cock crows thrice, and a prophecy comes true. You want a prophecy? I'll give you one. Here we go. Boom. So you can tell how he's actually, uh, this is Mark's artistry. He's, he's, he's actually doing something with what he's saying, knowing full well that, that his readers know actually what happened, but yeah, follow along with me, suspend your belief, and I'm taking you in a different direction. Well, that, for that matter, that goes for all of Mark. All of Mark is set as a unilateral, non-repeating journey that starts in Galilee and ends in Jerusalem. As if it were one long journey that Jesus undertook with his disciples. Everybody knows that's not true. In fact, a Jew should go to Jerusalem once every three years, as some of the other gospel writers say. But Mark says, I know you know that. Just hold on. I want to show you what it means to follow Jesus in discipleship from Galilee to Jerusalem to die with him. And for that purpose, I'm going to reconstruct my story as a one-way journey, the trip of discipleship. So clearly they're doing things with what they're saying. They got an agenda. Unless we catch that agenda, 
there is no valid application. And I fear, I fear that for most of the history of the church, other than inadvertently and accidentally hitting upon application that is right, I think we have done God a disservice, his word a disservice, and his people a disservice. And I would probably add his world, his unbelieving world a disservice. For had we done God, his word, and his people a service, their lives would have changed so much that the outside world would have seen it and said, I want that. So I keep telling myself as I work on this, we have done, and I, I include myself in that group of felons, I've done God a disservice, his word a disservice, his people a disservice, and his world a disservice. A serious indictment indeed. You have raised the value of the topic of Bible application in really high with that indictment. You're making it critical that we, as believers in God's word, use that word and allow the Spirit to use that word to conform us to the image of Christ. I have hopeful things to say there too. Number one is that books like yours are being written, and because of my work this season on Bible application, I've been reading a bunch of that kind of stuff. <clears throat> it seems as if biblical scholars, especially in the evangelical tradition, are recognizing we just can't stop with what we've always called exegesis, explicating the meaning of the text. We've got to move on to biblical theology, to systematic theology, which are kinds of application. And now we're talking more about personal application here. I believe that Tyndale's plowboy, the average person, should have the Bible in contemporary language. That Bible translations, therefore, are key tools for the Great Commission that Christ gave us to disciple the nations, to teach them to observe everything Christ has commanded us. I believe that regular Christians can and must read and study their Bibles on their own. I believe that we're not on our own, that the Spirit will guide us into all truth. And I believe that one of the Spirit's most important tools for doing this is other human teachers, despite our own failures. I believe in Bible study. And all this is why I find myself constantly turning to Logos Bible software and all my work. It makes the Bible text accessible to me at a level of detail I just don't get elsewhere. And it also gives me quick and inexpensive access to the work of many, many careful Bible teachers. The new Logos 9 now makes it even easier for me to do this. And I want to show you what I mean. If I type in any Bible passage into the passage guide, I get a prioritized list of links to all my commentaries. Logos 9 is all about small improvements that add up to something bigger. And now, in this new release, Logos 9, Logos gives me extra information about all my many commentaries, including even what denomination their authors come from. This is information that does help me in my Bible study. I'm all the time doing this, checking on my commentators, getting help from them, understanding scripture. Logos 9 has other small but big improvements like dark mode for all you dark mode people out there. I'll never understand you, but more power to you. It has the totally revamped fact book, a great place to start your study on all kinds of biblical topics. 
Christianity can get unmoored from the Bible, and what a horror it is when that happens. Don't let it happen to you. Use the best Bible study tools there are. Use Logos 9. Go to Logos.com and check out some of our base packages. Download our mobile app and start using the tools there. If you listen to a podcast about Bible study, you're probably pretty serious about it. You should not remain content with the free resources available on the internet. Check out the new Logos 9. Let me talk about another uh, set of technical terms that I found really helpful from you. You talked about distinguishing exemplification from significance in application. And I'm going to take a second to work through the illustration that you gave. This might sound too technical to users until your illustration comes in, I think makes it really clear, but I still want you to talk about it. You talk about the trans-historical intention of Ephesians 5.18, which I've memorized since I was a kid. And here's the King James, and be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, which means like going to riot, uh, um, but be ye filled with the spirit, etc. Um, the trans-historical intention of a text like that prohibits drunkenness with alcohol. You said an ideal world, you know, the, the, the world in front of the text that it's painting is one in which God's people are never intoxicated with alcoholic substances. So if the congregation that you're preaching to, you said, for some strange reason is prone to getting drunk on vodka, you know, you've got this immediate application to remind them that the biblical text uh, prohibits such inebriation. That inebriation, that's that's exemplification, I believe. But then you talk about, well, what if you have a bunch of people in your congregation who are subscribed to, you know, Wine Drinkers magazine, uh, and you as a pastor, as a shepherd, very aware of your local uh, needs there, you know, you, you, you've noticed this, you've, you've been in their homes. And so you go on to say, you know, probably not a good idea for you, my dear people, to be subscribed to a Wine Drinkers magazine, um, given what this text says. You, you encourage them to cancel their subscriptions. And that application, you said, isn't exemplification because the text doesn't say that. It doesn't say, be not drunk with wine and unsubscribe from any magazines that promote drunkenness in any way. You, you called that significance, finding the significance. Can you help us tease out maybe another illustration or two? Um, why is it important for us to distinguish those two things? Uh, simply because the exemplification part, what you can draw from Scripture directly, is, in a sense, an abstraction. And, and it is an abstraction, it, it is deliberately an abstraction, so that it can be specified, brought down to earth, put into shoe leather, by preachers in every millennium, in every hemisphere in every corner of the world for their own flock and for themselves. For that reason, these texts are deliberately abstract. Be not drunk with vodka, wine, whatever, is a fairly abstract thing because, okay, I won't get drunk. But that's not good enough for a preacher. For the shepherd who knows and loves the flock, you need to give them concrete creative things that they can start doing today. And just as an example, if I were preaching that text to 
a group of men in Scotland, in Aberdeen, for instance. And I knew that these men had the habit of driving by a distillery on their way back from work. And they would almost every day get in, get a bottle of scotch, whatever they wanted, go home, get drunk. If I knew that, then this verse, the application of this verse would be fairly straightforward. I would tell them to change their driving patterns. Avoid going. Now, now, if you asked Paul, did you mean by Ephesians 5.18 that this group of Scottish men should change their driving routes? And he would say, of course not. But these significances are a good means of accomplishing what the text calls us to do, which is not get drunk on whatever alcoholic beverage is your choice. So those are, so the significances are, as I call it, important arrows in the quiver of a preacher. In fact, it's, you, you may have noticed already that this is not just important in preaching. In any kind of Bible study, even in my own devotional, in my study at home, if I want to apply the text, I have to go through this process. I have to take the text, understand what the author is doing, and then find how can I start doing something? What is the one step, one actionable step that I can start doing today now to get me to where the text is calling me to be or what the ideal world is or what the facet, the pixel of Christ is that I need to uh, simulate. And, and so that's something that goes beyond homiletics, actually. It goes for any Bible study geared for application. Of course, we preachers are in the business of generating application for ourselves and our listeners. So Therefore, it's, a hom it's of homiletical interest, but actually this, what we're talking about goes far beyond. And I think every child of God has a responsibility to, to catch uh, this way of interpretation. I completely agree. And that's why I've had so many biblical studies academics on the Bible Study Magazine podcast this season, because ideally our work in the academic field should be aiming at increasing the resolution on the picture of Christ, um, inculcating, inculcating the, um, you know, the mimicking of every one of those pixels in our own lives. And I personally have never been able, and I'm glad I haven't been able, to separate my academic study of Scripture from my desire to please the Spirit who inspired it and to be like the ultimate word of John 1. This, we're not up in an ivory tower here. And if ever we do need to spend some time up there reading Paul Ricoeur or something difficult like that, the whole point is to come back down and help the church in the ways you're talking about. Now, I grew up in a King James only fundamentalist church community that is now generally regarded by my current theological tribe to be legalistic. That's the word that gets tossed out there. But over time, as I've aged and kind of gone through the, the patterns uh, that I've seen other people do when they change groups within the Christian church, I found myself wanting to be more charitable and not just throw them under the bus, in part because I know they loved me. I know they loved Christ. And in part, because I'm older, I'm a 
parent now, I see benefits from some of the significances they drew from the text of Scripture. Um, it seems to me that their error was not necessarily drawing wrong significances, you know, being too strict with themselves. Um, although their exegetical argument for why women shouldn't ever wear pants from the, the way the uh, the priests tucked up their garments underneath them for work. That was that was a stretch even to my 14-year-old self. But I, I think that their problem tended to be insisting that the significances that the overall group or the leaders of the group drew had to apply community-wide. They didn't leave to Christian liberty some judgment calls there, like standards for female modesty, the consumption of entertainment, those things come to mind. How should application work at the group level. It seems to me that your concepts of exemplification and significance might help us know the answer to this question. Yeah, no, clearly there are some significances that are wrong and some that are right. For instance, if I were to, based on Ephesians 5.18, say you should give all your money to the poor or donate 20% to the church tomorrow, uh, that's, that's, that's not lead me to not getting drunk with wine. So I can clearly say that that's probably, though it might be a good biblical thing to do, to donate all your money to charity or something. It's not necessarily related to this text. It's not moving me towards the call of this text, moving me more Christ-like. Uh, one thing to remember is that significance is uh, the application has a lot more exemplification, let me put it that way, it has a lot more authority than the significances. Exemplification, do not get drunk with wine, has a lot of authority because it's found directly in the text. For the most part, it can be drawn directly from the text. But the significance is the shepherd of the flock giving in his wisdom and in his love and with his pastoral authority what he thinks his flock ought to be doing. Uh, beyond that, there is no, it's not a, it, it, it's not a, a unforgivable sin if they don't take my suggestion to heart. I, and, and that happens often. I, I can remember in my, in the church that I attend, I once preached a sermon. I'm not sure what the text is, but the application I gave had, uh, had to do with creating a, um, a, a portfolio, a notebook in your Evernote app. Now, most of uh, our listeners are familiar with the Evernote app. And I, I was a little ambitious, and I actually showed one of my portfolios of gratitude. It's a notebook that I've created of pictures, of cards, of people, of anything that I'm grateful to God for, so that I can periodically just leaf through, scroll through it, looking at the wonderful things God has done in my life. So I suggested my congregation do that, too. Little knowing that not everyone is technically adept, and it was a little foolish of me to suggest that. Several weeks later, as I was in church, an elderly couple came up to me and said, "You know, Abe, we have we had no idea what that Never Note app was all about. That's what they called it, the Never Note. We had no idea what to do with that, so we just took a." bunch of index cards and started writing things we were thankful for and dropped it into a basket. And we have a whole collection of 100 cards already in two or three weeks. I said, more power to you for doing that. You know, that's exactly what you want. You want to give some specific application significance, knowing full well that people are going to tweak it for their own lives, for their own circumstances. Um, and, and there's, that's, 
That's great. I couldn't ask for anything better than that, that people just stay. One thing they learn from my specific application is, whoa, the preacher really thinks this needs to be applied and applied today and in a concrete fashion. Well, what he said doesn't really fit my case, so I'm going to just modify it. And that's wonderful. If, if, if the people of God really believed that the word of God needs to be applied today, and they started doing something about it right now, right after the sermon, I think every preacher would be gratified and humbled by it. Amen. I'm a preacher too, and I've made the very same distinction. I, I really feel the authority and actually more than that, the responsibility to at times thunder the uh, the exemplifications that I preach, okay? So if the text says that we've got to be grateful, you know, this is a New Testament theme, comes out many times in Paul, then I'm gonna say, you must be grateful. But then when it comes to the significances, the actual concrete applications that I might make of how to express gratitude or how to inculcate it in your children, I'm backing off. I'm saying, I'm not saying these things with the authority of God. I'm saying them with the authority of a shepherd, you know, who knows you and is strongly suggesting that these things might be your means of expressing gratitude that is obeying the text directly. But I'm not going to mandate that everybody in here has to show gratitude the same way I do. In fact, that's what they're paying you for. We know, they're saying, we know that you love God. You know God. You know God's ways better than us. You know God's word better than us. You know us sometimes better than we know ourselves. You love us, you care for us, you pastor us, you shepherd us. Therefore, now, preacher, we're convinced of what the text is calling us to do. Tell us, how can we start doing this today? And if I fail to do that, uh, I failed my calling to change lives. I so fully agree. My own pastoral mentor who taught me how to preach expositionally by his example and then later in classes had a series of steps he would go through, explanation, illustration, application, then argumentation, arguing for the validity of his applications because he recognized that there's a step there, often a step of logic or a trans-historical step, transculturating step, and then exhortation. And you couldn't call it preaching if you hadn't actually gotten to application and Lord willing exhortation. Now, let me test out some applications that I've made in preaching with you to see how you would grade me, Professor. I'm humble enough to stand here and ask you to give me anything from an A to an F. Uh, and I'm for some of them, I'm not gonna tell you when I preached this. I might've been very young. It might've been last week, okay? I'm putting you on the hot seat. <clears throat> One time, I preached Psalm 101.3 to some campers at camp. I'll never forget the girl on the front row who was just absolutely sacked out sleeping. I went to college with one of her brothers. Um, I The text says, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. The King James has it, and that's what I was preaching from at the time. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. I applied this to these campers, you know, late elementary school, middle school. I applied it to TV watching. Don't set wicked things before your eyes. Grade my application. Well, if you, I think if you were plucking that verse out of Psalm 101, uh, that would be fair. And that's kind of what we've done with Ephesians 5.18. I, I want our listeners to be well aware that I have just plucked, it's not even a full sentence in the Greek, by the way, be not drunk with wine. 
plucked it out simply for illustrative purposes. It helps to just have a small piece so you're not dealing with huge contexts that need to be explained. But a pericope is a larger chunk in Psalm 101. Uh, how many verses does it have? Let me take a look. Good question. Eight verses. Yeah, so that's a fairly short. That The whole thing ought to be a pericope. Um, if you look at Psalm 101, it's got two parts to it. What the king says he'll do for himself to be a person of integrity and what he says he will have done in his administration. And the verse that you cited was verse 3, I'll set no worthless thing before my eyes. If you actually look down at verse 7, he who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. And I'm reading from the New American Standard. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. That's not the Hebrew. He, I'm going to do it in the Hebrew. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before my, my face. Eyes. Oh, eyes, okay. That's exactly the same phrase as was there before. So, and there are several other parallels there. Blameless way, integrity, they're both repeated in each of those halves, suggesting that this is a mirroring situation. So I think in the context of what he's saying before my eyes is that he will not tolerate anything in his personal circumstances that smacks of evil. Probably people doing evil and probably, uh, I suppose TV watching is okay. It's, it's fair enough, an but I would probably say that in the larger context, I might opt for something else. His tolerance of evil is probably what is uh, before my eyes. That phrase in both of those parts of Psalm 101, that's probably where it's headed. I'd, I'd like to do a little bit more work on Psalm 101, which, by the way, I'm working on a commentary on the Psalms, so that's going to be a long-term project. Yeah. So I have uh, my pastor preach through many psalms on Sunday evenings. We're a fairly rare church in the Pacific Northwest that has Sunday evening services. And I'm telling you, those sermons were so precious because he treated each psalm, unless it was really lengthy, as a pericope. We got the message of that psalm. So you were gentle with me. I'm not actually one of your students. <clears throat> I'd kind of translate what you said into giving me a, ge a generous B minus. And at the very least, if I wanted to justify an application like that, I would have to set that verse in context. And now I will reveal, I was 19 years old when I did that. I highly doubt that I set that passage in context or noticed any textual echoes there. Over the years, I've come to... Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Te absolvo. Um, over the years, I've come to think... You know what some of the sermons that I have preached. <laughs> okay. So maybe, maybe we're even. Yeah. And it seems to me that the Lord in His grace has so often overcome my failures in homiletic, homiletics and interpretation and those of other preachers that I've heard, which to me underscores the power of His Word, the power of His Spirit, but doesn't give me an excuse. I'm so motivated to never have the Lord have to say to me, you know, you shouldn't have said, thus saith the Lord, when you preach that, because that's not actually what I said. I want to be a herald who is rightly dividing the word of truth, who's giving the actual message as he sent it. So that we do God a service, his word a service, 
his people a service, and his world a service. Amen. I have another interpretive question to ask of you, and I had plenty of questions to ask you uh, prepared, but I knew we wouldn't get through them. I knew we would get bogged down in the most interesting ways, but I don't want to fail to ask this, okay? This is a, another similar question like the one I just asked, um, but about something that I am, an application that I am making right now frequently in my work, and I want you to go ahead and grade me. I've done a lot of work pushing back as graciously as I can can against claims that, like the ones I grew up with, that the King James Version is the only reliable English translation. And one passage that I've appealed to really repeatedly, I've made it, if not uh, a major plank in my argument, really the keystone, is 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul repeatedly argues that because edification requires intelligibility, um, that, that people should not be speaking in untranslated tongues in the Corinthian church. He actually says, go sit down if there's nobody to translate your message, because then you might be edified yourself. You're speaking to God, but you're not benefiting the other people in the church. He applied the principle to tongues. I applied it. And I'm not alone in this. I've checked the history of interpretation. I've seen others do this. Uh, including uh, going back to Reformation days, I applied it to Bible translation. And I, I argued that Paul would not be happy with one group of Christians insisting that we all must use exclusively a traditional Bible translation, namely the King James, despite the many unknown and archaic and obsolete words that it contains. So if people were insisting, we've got to say besom in Isaiah, I think it's 29, or we've got to say chambering, and I want to say it's Romans, I can't remember now where, uh, we've got to say emerald rather than tumor. Um, no, we should say broom instead of besom. We should say immorality instead of chambering. We should say tumor instead of emerald. <clears throat> And I've had people push back against me and say, well, you're misapplying that text. It's only about tongues. It's not about Bible translation. And I stand on the word. I want to make sure I stand on the word. And when I read you say things like, we need to be careful not to... Uh, illegitimately principalize, you know, look through the text as if it's glass and just to get to, you know, the real truth behind it, I think, oh boy, I, I need to be really careful here. So can we talk through 1 Corinthians 14? How would you, do you regard my application as legitimate? I'm ready for you to render your judgment. Yeah, you know, in context, it's probably dealing with tongues and things like that. But, you know, for, for your purposes, I probably wouldn't even need to make a biblical case out of it. If I were preaching Psalm 23 and I said, What does that mean to you? Um, I heard one word I knew. I heard Jehovah. Yeah, oh yeah. It, it's a Bible translation in my mother tongue, Malayalam, which is spoken on the southwestern coast of uh, India by a few million people. Why would I preach at Northwest Bible Church here in Dallas using that translation that nobody can understand except for that one word Yahweh or Yehovah? Uh, it doesn't, it just doesn't, I mean, it doesn't make much sense that I would use it. In, the fact of the matter is that translations are not inerrant and inspired and infallible. Right. That's probably the big thing. Uh, we are assuming that they're close enough to the original autographs, but they're not. And usually what I do when I'm preaching things like 1 Samuel 15, I provide my own translations simply because I don't even fairly literal 
translations like the ESV and the New American Standard have failed to make those connections between the word place and have failed to translate it that way. Even in the Psalms, I'm finding now that quite often the emphases, the way the lines are constructed, how the text is written is uh, it, doesn't, it, it does not carry through in the English. And so we have lost a lot of the emphases and the, um, the bold and the italics, so to speak, which is the way they do it. And so I just make create my own translations. I'm in the process of working on the Psalms commentary, translating all 150 Psalms uh, based on catching those word plays and those intricacies and those filigrees of Psalmic poetic structure and so on and so forth. So... Would I say that my translation is inspired? Of course not. It's as inspired or as uninspired as any other translation. And uh, so I'm, I'm never compelled to pick one over the other. I generally tend to use the New American Standard. It's good enough. I base my own translation off it. I tend to, my translations tend to be a an edition of the New American. I bounce off that, but at the end of the translation procedure, I compare it and I say, well, this is a lot different from what I started off. So uh, I take a fairly loose approach to translations. Uh, though one, I have to add here that you have to be careful in this regard when you preach with a non-standard, and I don't know what non-standard is, but non-published, I suppose, NASV, NIV, RSV, ERSV, ESV, and all that. You don't want to, you want to be careful not to convey the impression to your listeners that unless they know Hebrew and Greek, they're sunk. Um, my hope is that in the next 30, 40, 50 years, translations would come up to speed with the kind of things I'm talking about and make those changes so that even a layperson uh, who does not have a good grasp of the original languages can see those wordplays in the text and figure out for himself or herself, ah, I think this is what the author is doing here. Until that time comes, I'm going to translate it. And I'm also going to recommend some interlinears that are easy to use for people who don't have any original language uh, expertise. Uh, Logos Bible Software, of course, has tools like that. And I know that there are people without that training who use the tools in that way. Now, um, I have myself also argued from common sense. I'm going to push us back to 1 Corinthians 14 because I really want your wisdom here. I've argued from common sense. I've argued from Matthew 28, which I regard as an, uh, a significance, not, a, not an exemplification, when Jesus says... Um, uh, you know, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. Um, go and disciple all the nations, teaching them to observe every pixel of the picture, you know, that I've painted here, you know, everything that I've commanded you. How can you do that without translating the word? And at least historically, Christians have done this throughout the world. But back to 1 Corinthians 14, because of course I could just make the common sense argument, the exemplification argument from Matthew 28. But um, I was taught a principalizing method. And when I look at 1 Corinthians 14, I, don't, I can't think of another passage where the principle seems to get stated so often, where he's saying over and over again, I don't want you to use words that people can't understand because then they won't be edified. And when people tell me, um, you can't use that text to talk about Bible translation, it's all about tongues, 
I think, well, then what can we use it for? You know, in my tradition, nobody's speaking in tongues. I'm not in a charismatic tradition. So should we just skip this passage, you know, since it's just not really an issue for us? Or should we only apply it when we're in internet debates with charismatics? Um, is it a right use of this text? Can I, can I apply it faithfully to an issue like Bible translation? I, you know, I think that probably is fair because he does say that I'd rather speak five words that people can understand than 10,000 in, in a known tongue. So, um, so I think that's uh, that's fair enough. Uh, perhaps at this point, the author Paul is talking about preaching more so than than translations. But I surely probably fair. You can extrapolate it a couple of steps behind the preaching and say even translations, because that was something they never had in those days, uh, except for the Septuagint, which was faulty and. Right. You no, know, some some people might argue that the uh, New Testament writers used a faulty translation. <laughs> right. I regard Bible translation. Um, I, I assume kind of the way you've described it, in in the same way you do. It, it is an aspect of Bible teaching. When Bible scholars sit down to do that translation, you're doing it for the purposes of a commentary. The ultimate purpose is to teach the church what God said, because they act, God made it so that we need an intermediary. Uh, a little comment about your uh, comment on translations. You know, I've gone back and forth over the years about formal versus more functional approaches. And the next uh, issue of Bible Study Magazine coming out in January is going to be talking about the value of all the major approaches. Um, I tend to think that we're never going to get one standard English translation again, <clears throat> so that if people can just be made aware that the NIV and the Net Bible and this, uh, what is it, the NLT tend to smooth over the text to make it easier, but then you do miss these little word plays so that we can just tell people there's a value in that, you know, so you can just read quickly and get the big picture. But the formal translations ought to stay your baseline because you want to catch those things. That would just be my editorial comment. Yeah, now, I, think that, that, I think that's probably right. I think there's a place for a devotional reading of scripture. And for that, I think the NIV is great. It's, it's very readable. But I think when it comes to preaching, and you know, my focus is entirely, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I've got a blinkered view on one aspect of ministry, and that's preaching and spiritual formation. So I think for that, if you want to catch what the author is doing, you got to pay attention to how the text is written, um, because without that, you're not going to catch what the author is doing, and if you don't catch what the author is doing, we're not going to be able to make valid application. So I, I think absolutely there may be even again. a place for a hybrid where it's devotional, but there are an abundance of footnotes, almost creating a, a more literal Bible underneath for those who want to study it and saying, yeah, but this is the word that's actually been used. Oh, and did you catch the word play, the voice and the voice and so on and so forth? The closest. Yeah. Yeah. That, now, the, the translation there is very loose. So I never, I just read the notes. I don't even read the translation. It's, it's quite loose in parts. So I'm, I'm actually precisely the same. Yeah. And I'm not trying to cast aspersions on the work of those scholars. I'm grateful for it. But the value to me has been in those notes and in recommending them 
to the lay people who are especially interested in kind of entering the academic biblical studies world, I think they're, that's a great on-ramp to textual criticism and to translation because there's no other translation that gives so many notes about you know why we did what we did and exactly the kind of notes that you're talking about. Well, we kind of strayed off into translation, which is my fault because it's a major interest of mine, but you made very interesting comments and I'm very interested to see your translation of the Psalms in this commentary. Um, who's gonna put that out? When can we expect this? Is it okay for me to ask? All my commentaries are published by Cascade. So I've got, what do I have now? Genesis, Judges, Mark, and Ephesians. And the pastoral episodes, First and Second Timothy and Titus, are coming out probably within the next month or so. It's all by Cascade in uh, Eugene, Oregon. I really ought to know this, but are those commentaries available in Lagos Bible Software? Uh, I didn't see them, I don't think, when I just searched your name in our database. So we've got to rectify this. I want, I like all my commentaries to be in Lagos. I think the publisher thinks they're not making enough money out of Lagos for doing that. Uh, and, you know, uh, Cascade runs a uh, print on demand kind of approach. Um, so they cut corners and keep things within limits. But for those who are interested, if you go to my website, homiletics with an X.com, you can at least download one chapter of everything that I've written. Uh, if you want to check it out and see if it's worth spending your good money on. Good. Well, I want to hereby give moral permission to listeners and viewers of the Bible Study Magazine podcast to read paper books. It is okay. You don't have to have all your commentaries in Logos Bible software, even though I do. Well, I guess I do have a couple uh, paper ones up on my shelf. You answered the last question I was going to ask, which is where else can we sample your work? So it's homiletics with an X dot com. Dr. Kurovilla, this is a real delight. I love your spirit. I love the attention that you've given to uh, obeying the Lord by listening to his word as closely as possible. And I pray as we did before this interview started that our conversation will be used by the Lord to increase sound, careful, Christiconic application within the, within the church. Thank you for coming on the Bible Study Magazine podcast. thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. And not only because I got at least a passing grade with my own application of 1 Corinthians 14 from the homiletics professor, but because I love the evangelical spirit Dr. Curavilla brings to his academic work. If academic biblical studies does not bring life change to people in the church, starting with the academics themselves, then it's a bunch of sound and scholarly fury signifying nothing. If the work you and I do to understand the Bible doesn't produce life change, we haven't been forgetful, we've been disobedient. Our efforts to carefully hear the word have to, they have to become doing the word. The purpose of Bible teaching that we receive or give has to be that we are all in the church conformed to the image of our head. The academic jargon that Dr. Curavilla and I used in this conversation will be helpful to you only insofar as you grasp the concepts they were naming. Though there were plenty of academic niceties in the last hour, for me, our talk was eminently practical. I like the labels exemplification and significance especially. 
the line between the two is not always bright and clear. But as a student and a teacher of the Bible, I very much appreciate the distinction between applications that arise fairly immediately out of the text of Scripture, don't get drunk, and those that are more specific to my circumstances or require more inferences to be made. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Bible Study Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to Bible Study Magazine or check out past issues or check out past episodes of the podcast at BibleStudyMagazine.com. I'm your host, Mark Ward. I hope you will join us for the few remaining episodes of the Bible Study Magazine podcast for this season and catch my once a month word nerd videos also on the Logos Bible Software YouTube channel.